0: Alright, if I had any kind of foresight at all, I would have preached on the armor of God, uh, because that was a great intro. But turn in your Bibles now somewhere else, to Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, and uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 2. And uh, as I said, I'm, I'm really thankful to be back. Thank you for the chance for my family and I to get just two weeks of rest. I had the privilege of tuning in and uh, listening to both of the sermons that were preached. I'm so thankful for Scott Hogeveen, for Matt Scarlett. Uh, They opened the Word. It was faithful. It was wonderful. And uh, and now we're jumping back in. And you might be expecting that we would jump back into the book of Acts, but we are not. Uh, We're going to take a break over the rest of this summer to deal with a, a topical series. And if you know me, you know that my preference is not to do a topical series like this, Because, I mean, there's something safe, there's something sweet about just working systematically through books of the Bible. It kind of protects you from from me and from my preferences and all my thoughts. Because I know that a lot of my thoughts aren't all that helpful or insightful. Um, But, having said all that, that's the qualifier. Our main course is is preaching through books of the Bible. But, from time to time, it's helpful, uh, perhaps even needful, to look at something that's happening in our culture, happening in our lives... And to specifically apply the Word of God to that issue to help us think rightly. So that's what we're doing uh, for the rest of this summer. And this series is called The Air We Breathe. The Air We Breathe. And the reason that, that we've titled the series The Air We Breathe is because over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at patterns of thinking that are so pervasive in our culture that we don't even really notice them. Uh, things that have shaped us in such a way that it, it's it's so commonplace. It's so much of a part of, of my world and, and the way that I think that it's almost like the air I breathe. We're not talking about the big rock cultural issues. This isn't a series about like sexuality or gender or abortion or some of those topics you might think. No, this is a series about the subtle things that creep in, uh, that shape us in ways that we don't realize they're shaping us. If I could use an analogy, you can imagine that we're dealing with like the carbon monoxide sins. These are the things that are untraceable, that, that silently slip in and can really do a lot of damage to a congregation while they rest unaware. So we're putting in the censor, the if you will, and we're going to deal with them. What are we talking about? I'm talking about things like tribalism and consumerism and individualism and, and an introspection obsession that's shaping our culture right now and an authority aversion and suspicion and the instant gratification that shapes our day-to-day lives, and our entertainment addiction. I want to talk about those, those sinful patterns of thought, those, those ways of thinking that, that really we bring with us into the worship gathering without thinking. So some examples. Just think about our corporate worship, our singing together as a people. I, I want to talk about the things that that cause us from time to time when we should be praising God, instead we, we sulk because of our song preferences. We don't like what's happening. Or instead of, of singing praise to God, we, we shell up because we're thinking so much about what people are thinking about, are thinking about me. Or, or we judge people because they don't worship the way that I want them to. They're too exuberant or not exuberant enough. And we bring that in and we baptize it and we justify it and man, it's wrong like what kind of thinking leads us to a place where we could come and rather than praising God, we, we fixate on ourselves or on others. I'm talking about the patterns of thinking that lead us to, maybe you've been a part of this, to get together in our Christian circles and to compare and to combat and to, to scrutinize our various congregations. Oh, your congregation's got better teaching, but we've got the better music. Oh, your kids' ministry is this. but mine. And we talk about our, our worship gatherings the way we talk about our favorite restaurants. Like, like we're consumers. There are Google reviews for churches. That's weird. We wouldn't talk about our wives this way. You shouldn't talk about your wife this way. But we talk about the bride of Christ this way. How did that happen? I'm talking about the the fact that we can often start a day and we'll spend five minutes maybe looking at the Word of God, but then we'll spend five hours immersing ourselves in in our phones or or in Netflix, and we don't even feel a pang of guilt about that. That's just commonplace. That's just the air we breathe, right? We we don't even try to hide this stuff, and it's that that subtlety that makes it so dangerous. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to point at a few of these things, a few of these thought patterns that we're living in. And we're going to apply the word of God, and I think we're going, be, we're going to be helped. And we're doing this because of Romans 12, 1-2. This is where we're going to begin our series, and this is where we're going to find um, just God's word pushing us forward in this venture. I hope that you have it open in front of you. Romans 12, 1-2. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living, and active word to us today. I appeal to you, therefore... Brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, if you, if you look down at your Bible, you know, what is this passage really about? Well, he's, he's teaching us about worship, right? What he's showing us is that right worship it really is right living, right? He says, in view of God's mercies, you present your body as a living sacrifice, right? Live rightly. He says, which is your spiritual worship? So right living is right worship. But then he connects this dot in verse 2. And he says that actually this right living and this right worship, it flows out of, it's fought for in your right thinking. Don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of what? Your mind. That by testing you can discern the will of God. What is good, acceptable, perfect. Meaning the battle begins right here. So if if there's a pattern of thinking that is, is creeping into our minds from the world, it is going to affect our Worship is going to keep us from giving God the worship that he deserves. And to be clear, when I talk about worship over the course of this series and today, I'm not just talking about the songs we sing on Sunday. I mean, we use language here and there's nothing wrong with it, but we talk about, you know, the worship beginning. And uh, our team gets up and they play their songs. I guess I'm Josh right now. Not as handsome, of course, but the team gets up and they lead us in our singing and we call this a worship service. And that's right. There's nothing wrong with that language. Unless it leads you to believe that the worship stops when Josh puts down his guitar. Or the worship stops when we walk out of the room. In that case, it's unhelpful, right? Because our worship is our, it's our whole life. It's, it's our living. That's what we mean when we talk about worship. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. All of it. That's worship. Your habits. Your thinking. Your routines, your eating, your sleeping, your speaking. And as we see in this passage, your thinking. All of it is meant to be and designed to be and finds its greatest fulfillment and joy when it is turned Godward in worship. That's why you exist, brothers and sisters. And that's what God deserves. So as we look to this passage, we're going to spend our time this morning reflecting on the worship that God deserves. We're going to learn three lessons, okay? Very, very simple. Three lessons. The first is this the worship God deserves is fueled by grace. Look again at verse one. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I want you to notice, first of all, who he's appealing to. I appeal to you, therefore, who? brothers, right, and by extension, sisters. He's writing he's right. to he the brothers and the sisters, of course. But this language that he's using, it's familial language. And if you're like me, sometimes we throw this language around. I call people brother all the time. Why well, are you doing brother? Uh, the apostle Paul's not me. Um, he's very specific and intentional with the way he uses this language. For, for Paul, when he uses that language of brother or sister, he's talking to the household of God. He's talking to fellow believers. And he's doing this because of what Jesus taught us in Mark 3, 34 to 35. Jesus said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So Paul is specifically appealing here to who? The church, to Christians. This command, Romans 12, 1 to 2, is not for your unbelieving neighbor, it's not for your unbelieving co worker. Paul is writing to people like us who have put our trust in Jesus. And that observation leads us to the most important word in this passage. And I would argue the most important word in all of Christian ethics and Christian living. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. You've heard this said a hundred times. I'm going to say it 101 times now. Whenever you see the word therefore, what do you do? You need to find out what it's there for. Right? What what Paul is doing with this word is he is pointing back to something that came before, and he's saying, This right here, 12, 1 to 2, this block right here, it is flowing out of what I have said previously. This is the logical conclusion, the appropriate conclusion to what was here. Therefore, do this. So what do we need to do? We need to figure out what it's there for. What came before? And one of the questions we need to answer is how far back are we looking? Like, are we looking at the paragraph at the end of chapter 11? Is that this conclusion? Or maybe is it all of chapter 11? Or I would argue that Paul is pointing back to the whole letter to the Romans, chapters 1 to 11. And so I'm going to read that to you this morning. I'm kidding. That would take a long time. Uh, That would, there'd be nothing wrong with that, but that would be the rest of the service. Uh, Your homework for today is I would encourage you to go home and read chapters 1 to 11. And that's going to help you to understand what, what he's pointing to here. But with the time we have, I do want to give you a brief summary of the argument that came before. As one commentator notes, we should probably not tie it in. The therefore, we probably should not tie it in too closely to the immediately preceding words. Though there's a good sequence of thought, but take it as referring to the whole massive argument that has preceded it. So he agrees. We're talking about the whole letter. So what has he been describing in chapters one to eleven? He's been preaching the gospel. If, if you're familiar at all with the book of Romans, he has been proclaiming the good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ to secure our salvation. And so let's just walk through what he's explained to the Romans. We begin in chapter 1. And if, if you've got your Bible open, again, you can flip with me. We can walk through Romans together and see this. If you were with us last Sunday, Matt Scarlett reminded us that in order to understand the good news, first we need to wrap our minds around the, the bad news. If your doctor comes to you and says, I have a cure and gives you the the medicine, first you need to understand that you're sick and you need the medicine. Well, that's where Paul begins in chapter 1. Look with me to verses 18 to 20. He writes, for the wrath of God, so here's our problem, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So Paul, Paul begins in this letter, and he tells them, that listen, there is a God And so as we begin this morning, let me just look out and tell you, there is a God, and according to God and his word, everybody in this room knows it. Now, maybe you're in the room and you're like, well, actually, I'm an atheist. Well, according to God, he says, no, you're actually kind of not. Like, everybody knows this, and yet, he says, that some of us suppress the truth. I'm reading um, the Chronicles of Narnia to our kids, and last night we were in the first book, And in the first book, Aslan is creating Narnia and he's singing this song. And it's clearly a a parallel to Genesis. Aslan is singing and as he sings, this world is being formed. And the kids are watching this unfold and they're listening to Aslan sing and seeing the trees sprout up and seeing all of the fingerprints of what is being done. Uh, And his uncle, Uncle Andrew, the kid's uncle, he's he's not a great guy. And he likes the world to be in his own little thing and he's trying to collect things and he wants to live his way. And so he hears Aslan singing and, and like the kids in the beginning, he hears the song and he sees what is being done. But unlike the kids, Uncle Andrew decides, no, this is, this is ridiculous. This is preposterous. This changes my whole life. This changes everything. And so he says he's not actually singing. He's just roaring. He's just a lion. This is, this is silly. And he convinces himself of this reality and by the end of the chapter, Uncle Andrew actually does hear roaring he's he's so deceived himself that when he looks out and he listens he's seeing and hearing everything that he's convinced himself he should see and hear paul's telling us in romans that's like what we do with god like look around you now this gym is not the most beautiful place um look around you at the people around you though there's some wonderful beautiful people sitting here little miracles in and of themselves each and every one of them and you're one of these miracles and you're going to walk out and see this beautiful creation, and the fingerprints of God are all over the whole thing. And you look in a microscope and you see the fingerprints of God. And you look in a telescope and you see the fingerprints of God. And that's what Paul's saying. Everywhere, God is revealing himself to the world. And yet we suppress the truth. We tell ourselves, oh, this is just an accident, some cosmic accident. Or we tell ourselves, oh, it's a mystery, unknowable, right? No sense speculating. I'm agnostic. We can't know a thing. Or we find whatever little narrative we can grab hold of that will allow us to live the lives that we want to live. Because if there is a God, then this is his house. If there is a God, then he makes the rules, and I have to obey them. And so we suppress the truth. That's a problem. He goes on to explain this problem further in chapter 3. You can flip there with me. Chapter 3, verse 23. He talks about the extent of, of this problem, this rebellion. He says, for all have sinned, for there's no distinction, in the end of verse 22, for there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, each and every one of us, the Bible says, have, even though God's in charge and he makes the rules, all of us have done things that we know are wrong. And whether you've ever opened the Bible and heard the word of God or not, your conscience testifies to you that, man, I've done some things, right? And I haven't done some things that I should have done. I'm not a perfect person. None of us in this room are. We have all sinned. The Bible calls that sin. Now you say, well, what's, what's the consequence then? What's the problem? Well, flip ahead to chapter six and we see the problem is pretty severe. Romans 6 verse 23, in the very beginning of the verse, he says, for the wages of sin and all of sin, remember, the wages of sin is death. Well, That's significant. That's a significant problem. In fact, it's the most important problem in your life. It's the most important problem in the universe. There is a God. He is holy. We're his creation. We have all sinned, and the penalty for that sin is death. There's no other problem that deserves your attention more than this. So then what's the solution? Maybe can can God just turn a blind eye to Levi's sin? Maybe he can just sweep it under a rug. I'm actually a pretty nice guy. If you take out all the nasty stuff, there's lots of goodness in me. Maybe if he just pretends that he didn't see it or or just he could could hide that, maybe like lose the evidence. But of course, a God who does that, a God who just sweeps it all under the rug is a God who doesn't deserve our worship. That just makes him like a corrupt judge or like, like a policeman that you can pay off. It's not a god who's worthy of our worship. So then how does he solve this problem? If I am a sinner and he is holy, what can be done? I need a solution. I need to know that God is just and holy and righteous and yet somehow forgiving and merciful and loving. How does it fit? Well, look back to chapter 3. I don't want making you go back and forth, but in chapter 3 I'm going to read verses 23 to 26. And here we find the answer to this mystery. So he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's our problem. And are justified. Justified means declared innocent, declared righteous. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Meaning something that we can't earn. It's something that we receive. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation, that is, a, that is an offering that satisfies a debt. Okay, so imagine it that way. You come before the judge and he says, you owe 50 years. In this instance, he says, you owe death. Well, somebody needs to pay that debt and the Bible says that Jesus is the payment for that debt. He is the propitiation. How? By his blood to be received by faith. And this, this cross, this sacrifice for our sin was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he, that is God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So Paul says the cross is the answer to the mystery. How could God be good and still love people like us? Because I'm not good. How could God be just and righteous and still forgive people like you and me? Because I've done some things. It's the cross. Jesus, in his perfect obedience, lived the life we couldn't live. Jesus took in his flesh the sins of everyone who would repent of their sin. He took it on the cross and he paid it in full and it's gone, which is why in chapter 8 of Romans, he says, verses 1 to 2, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. He says, if you confess your sins and you place your trust in Jesus, then you are forgiven. You are free. You are a child of God. You are going to live with God forever. You're an heir to the throne of Christ. You're his brother. You're his sister. You are going to see the the renewed heavens and earth creation as it was meant to be before we ruined it with our sin. You're going to have a front row seat to see it, to live in it, to reign in it forever. Because of what God has done in Christ. There's therefore now no condemnation for you. And that brings us to chapter 12. Where Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, in light of all of that, brothers. By the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. says, if you don't see all of that, then this life is impossible. It doesn't make any sense. Why would you give yourself up to a God who is... A tyrant, or non existent, or you would only give yourself up to a God if you have seen appropriately what He has done for you in Christ. John Calvin says this command, this exhortation teaches us that until men really apprehend, until you really get it, how much they owe to the mercy of God, they will never, with a right feeling, worship Him. You can't live the Christian life until you've seen the Christian gospel. Right? Can't live the good life till you've seen the good news. But when you see this amazing grace, when it captures your heart and your mind, it changes everything. And you gladly lay your life on that altar and say, God, my life is for you. That's the first thing we see, right? The the worship that God deserves flows out of grace, it's fueled by grace. Second, the worship God deserves holds nothing back. So look again at verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, in light of all that grace, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, the language he uses here would have been jarring for his original audience. It's less jarring for us because we use the language of sacrifice all the time. It's like, oh man, I really, I uh, was a real sacrifice for me, but I did put in that one hour of overtime. That the people who are hearing this are people who who physically, tangibly saw and took part in sacrifices. Right, one commentator notes, they had stood by the altar and watched as an animal was identified as their own, as it was slain in the ritual manner, its blood manipulated, and the whole or part of the victim burned on the altar and descended in the flames to the deity they worshipped. And to those people who have seen that over the course of their life, Paul says, now you are the living sacrifice. Now now you go on the altar. Man, that they understood the extent of what Paul was calling for, which was complete, total, absolute offering of self to God. Which is of course exactly what Jesus said when he called out to his disciples. Do you remember? If anyone would come after me, Jesus said, let him let her deny himself and take up his cross and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it and you know, before we go any further i just need to tell you if in case you didn't know this already there is nothing greater than life with jesus like there there is nothing greater it is what you were made for. It's where you are gonna find everything that you are looking for. There's nothing greater than life with Jesus. In fact, life without Jesus, it is life. Like It's a cheap counterfeit. It's, it's not real. It makes promises that it can't deliver on. In fact, I go as far as to say it's a trap from the evil one trying to lull you to sleep until he can lead you to hell. But Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Man, life with Jesus is everything that everyone in this room needs. You need this. You need this. But having said that, I want to be crystal clear this morning that life with Jesus is not a hobby. When you see the reality of it all the reality of God and the reality of your sin, the reality of of the gospel and the reality of eternity man, it flips your world upside down. You can't keep living with your boyfriend. When you, when you see this, you can't keep yelling at your wife. When you, when you see this, you can't keep playing around with pornography. You can't keep partying on the, be, the weekend with your buddies. Your life is no longer about amassing the most money possible. Your life is no longer about worshipping your children. Your life is no longer about chasing after comforts or pleasures. No, when you see this, when you follow Jesus and you have life with him, it is to say, Jesus, I am completely, 100%, Yours, my life, my ambition, my money, my family, all of it is yours. That is the Christian life. If you read the New Testament, you can't come away without seeing it. And it is glorious. (laughs) It's glorious, but it's costly. Jesus was clear about that. It is filled with joy, unspeakable, full of glory, but it comes with a great loss. It's a call to lay down everything that you knew so that you can receive everything that you need. Jesus said this, hear this, this is the truth. Jesus said, maybe he's saying this to one of you today, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? This is what you need, brothers and sisters. This is what you need. And and I can't go any further without maybe issuing a warning. Maybe there's somebody else who needs to hear this. Listen, there's no category in the New Testament for a Christian who, who chooses to hang on to habitual sin for a lifetime. Now listen, there's not a single perfect person in this room and so we all are going to fall short of the glory of God. We're all going to sin and make mistakes and we're, going to, we're even going to take a step backwards sometimes and then take a step forward again. But if there's sin that you're holding on to and you're saying, no God, I'm not going to let this go, I'm going to keep this with me forever, there's no category in the Bible for a Christian who holds on to their habitual sin. You cannot follow Jesus and keep that. Neither is there a category in the Bible for a Christian who says, God, I'm offering up to you almost all of my life. But this category over here, you don't get to speak into it. Right? This part and all the verses that talk about this thing over here, this is off limits. There's no category in the Bible for people like that. He will have all of us or he will have none of us. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body you bought with a price, bought with the precious blood of the Son of God. I was bought out of my sinful rebellion. You were bought out of death. We were bought out of hell. He saw us, and he loved us, and he lived for us, and then he died for us. And then he rose for us, and he ascended for us, and he sent his spirit to us, and right now he's interceding for us. And why would we settle for anything less than him? He is all that we need. And Paul appeals to us this morning, brothers and sisters, give him everything or give him nothing at all. There is no in-between because the worship that God deserves holds nothing back. That's the second lesson we learn in this passage. But you're ready, there's one more. There's a third lesson and that's this. The worship that God deserves is fought for in the mind. It's fought for in the mind. And here I hope you'll see the connection between our passage this morning and and what we're gonna to seek to do over the coming weeks. You see, the challenge with being a living sacrifice is the living part. That's complicated. Right? You've probably heard the joke, it's true. You know, the, the worst thing about living sacrifices is they always climb off the altar. It's true. Have you been there? It's true. There's some truth to it. If the call was simply to die for Jesus, that would be frightening and and a bit morbid, but at least it'd be easier. There's a sense in which, okay, I get it. You do this and then you're done. But the call is to be a living sacrifice. Well, that's hard. That's complicated. The reality is each and every one of us are faced with unique challenges. I mean, so what does it look like to be a living sacrifice and to be a a husband and father and pastor? Man, on a day-to-day basis, I'm trying to figure that out. On a day-to-day basis, I'm, I'm having to make decisions and try and figure out, well, how do I keep this? How do I do this? Well, that's just my life. What does it look like then to be a, a living sacrifice as a mother and wife and a pastor's, pastor's wife? That's hard for Amanda. She's figuring that out. What about for the plumber? Or what about for the lawyer? What about for the single? Like, what does this look like in each of our lives? Each of us are facing challenges that nobody else in the room is facing. You made decisions this week that nobody else had to make. You had to make a call. You rolled out of bed and you're wondering, what does it look like for me to live for Jesus today in this life that he's put me in? Man, sometimes it feels like it's impossible to be discerning, to to live the way we should. But our passage today tells us that God has actually given us what we need to know how to live. Look at verse two again. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So Paul is saying, if you want to know the will of God, what's good and acceptable and perfect, then you need to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And perhaps you say, well, okay, that's great, but still, what on earth do I do? Like, how do I, how do I make that happen? Well, let's talk about it. The mind, the thinking, this is important. It's practical. If We can, by the grace of God, there are things we can do in our life to, to live this out. One commentator reminds us, the reference to the mind is important. Paul does not envisage a, a mindless emotionalism, but a deeply intelligent approach to life as characteristic of the Christian who's been renewed by the Holy Spirit. So we need to learn how to think rightly, and there's a way to do that. I want you to notice, look in your Bible, if you look at these two verbs, you know, conformed, transformed, if, if, you're, if you can remember your English classes at all, those verbs are in the passive tense, And you're thinking, oh, don't do English. It's too hot. I'm not ready for this. Well, it's it's really practical. Okay, those are passive things, meaning they're things that happen to you. So an active verb is like Levi threw the ball. That's active. Passive is Levi caught the ball. Right? Somebody had to throw something, but then I it came to me and I caught it. All right. So here he's saying Levi doesn't transform his mind. What I need is for my mind to be transformed, meaning there are things that are acting upon me that are either conforming me or transforming me. I'm either being conformed by the world or transformed by the word. Those are, those are the options, but this is happening to me. Whether I like it or not, whether you like it or not, we are changing. Our minds, are thinking are changing day by day. So then, as Christians, we want to be transformed by the renewal of our mind, that by testing, we can discern the will of God. We want that to happen. So then what do we do? Imagine this. Imagine, well, as I imagine this, I'm pretty happy. Imagine there's like two uh, spouts of water just pouring out. I would love to be under a spout of water right now. Um, I feel like I am under a spout of water right now. <laughs> two spouts of water coming down. All right, Paul says you've got these two choices. One is spouting out just like sewage and filth. right? And one is spouting out this living water, this cleansing stream that's going to change the way you think. There are these two things. And the reality is you're going to live under one or the other all day long. One or the other is going to be washing over you. He uses this same dichotomy in chapter 8. In chapter 8 verses 5 to 6, he says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. So Paul's got this dichotomy, these two things, right? You're going to be under one or the other, and it's going to change you. So then, thinking practically, if I want to learn how to discern the will of God, I need to position myself under this one. I need to position myself in a place where God is washing over me and changing me and purifying me. So let's, we'll think about that. But here's the challenge. Maybe you're thinking about this. Some of you, maybe you work in a workplace that's really tough. For eight hours of your day, you are going to be next to coworkers making crude, crass jokes. You're going to be dealing with people who are grumbling and complaining, and you're going to be essentially sitting under sewage for eight hours, and that's your life. That's tough, right? Because you can't change that. That's your job. Or maybe students, you're going to school, and you know for eight hours of your day, you're under the filth. I get it. Sometimes you can't change that. But, wait, there's 16 other hours in your day, aren't there? Let's say you are blessed to sleep for eight. And all the, all the moms in the room are like, oh, what I would do to sleep for eight. Let's just assume, though, that you're sleeping for eight. Well, now you, there's these eight other hours, right, that, that actually you, you've got some opportunity to work with these other eight hours. So the question then is, where are you going to position yourself for these eight hours? Are you, are you going to spend these eight hours staring at your phone, looking at Twitter or Facebook or YouTube, or, or, or are you going to plop yourself in front of the TV and watch your Netflix or your Disney Plus or your Amazon Prime or watching your CBC or watching your Fox News and just having the world just just mess into your brain and give you all this nastiness? Is that where you're going to spend your time? And you might. You might make that choice. You just need to understand that as you're doing that, you are being conformed to this world. You are changing whether you like it or not. The way that you think is changing whether you like it or not. It's implanting things. It's, it's, it's changing the way you perceive the world so that you've got that choice, you can live that life. But alternatively, in church, I would plead with you, if you want to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you need to put yourself under this cleansing stream where God is going to wash over you. You say, well, what does that look like? That looks like, very practically, being a person who opens the word of God and spends time in it. Like, read it. And you're like, well, I can't read. Well, then find an app and listen to it. I mean, there is no culture, like this Canadian culture we live in now, nobody in the history of the world has had more access to the Bible than we do. You can can get a video of it or a a download of it or you can read however many translations of it. I mean, we have got it. We can find it. We got it in Braille. Like, we've got it. Get yourself into the word of God. You've made a good choice this morning. You've come to to worship with God's people and we've sung the word over one another and we've prayed the word and now we're we're preaching the word. So right now, you're you're under that cleansing stream, right? Hopefully, he's dislodging some things in your brain and in your heart and cleansing you right now. Time in prayer. I mean, brothers and sisters, just, just spend time with him in fellowship. Talk to him and listen to him and that's cleansing you. Gather with your brothers and sisters and talk about what God is teaching you right? Our fellowship together, that's cleansing us. Just spend time in creation. God reveals himself in his creation. Go for a walk in the woods. Go out, work in your garden. Listen, and, and, and I'm sure that there are some things on your phone or on that TV where God is going to edify you and give you good stuff. So I'm not telling you to throw it all away. But what I am saying is be discerning. What are you going to do with that time? Where are you going to position yourself so that you can be transformed by the word of god. And here's the challenge for you. I want to invite you to learn to cherish the moments when when you're reading your bible or you're sitting in a sermon and god's word offends you. You know, sometimes we run from that or we find that uncomfortable. Can I just encourage you today? Those are the those are the moments when god's really doing something, right? Because the reality is if you're under this cleansing stream and he's washing over you, eventually something he's going to dislodge something. He's going to He's gonna wash something away that has become like second nature to you. That's why we position ourselves under the stream. So when you're reading your Bible and he says something and you go, that flies in the face of everything I thought I knew. Good, everything you thought you knew came from this fountain over here. You need some dislodging, right? We need renewal. Learn to love that. Learn to say, oh God, thank you for that discomfort that I felt in your word today. I needed that. And as that washes over you, and as you change and respond, that is worship. Submitting to your creator because you believe that his way is best, that is worship. Offering up your life to him to follow wherever he leads, that's worship. Learning how to discern his will for your life, that's worship. Glorifying and enjoying him now and in the life to come, that's the worship that God deserves. It's what you were made for, and it's where you will find joy and life and love And this right here is the place where with the help of the Holy Spirit, you will be transformed and you will be enabled to discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so over the course of this series, we're going to do just that. We're going to try and pull ourselves out of that, the world for a moment, and we're going to look at some of these patterns of thinking that have become so common. And we're going to invite God by his word and the power of his spirit working in us to dislodge some things that have really settled in. So to that end, would you just join with me as we pray? Oh, Heavenly Father, we love you. God, I thank you for the privilege of being able to gather in this place. Lord, even though we acknowledge it's, it's, it's hot in this room, it's stuffy. Um, but Lord, what a gift it is just to have a place where we can come. Lord, a time for us to be together as brothers and sisters and to learn and to grow. And God, I confess on my behalf and on behalf of your people, Lord, we need to grow in this. Lord, we want to offer up lives that are pleasing to you. We want to live the lives that you made us to live. We don't want to waste the time that we have. God, so would you help us? Would you shape us? Would you speak to us? Lord, I pray that even now as we prepare it, we're going to respond in song and then we're going to go. Lord, I pray that you would take little things that you've revealed even in our time together this morning. Lord, and apply them and transform us. And I pray that we would never be the same. God, I pray that you would do transforming work in us right now that would make us forever, eternally different for your glory. Lord, it's the worship you deserve, and it's the worship that we want to bring. Would you help us, enable us to bring it? We can't transform our own minds. We want to, we wish we could. We need to be transformed, and only you can do it. So we invite you to do that today and in the weeks ahead. Help, God help, in Jesus' name, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?